The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. Today marks what is um, called the Advent season, and it basically is a, an extended number of weeks where we as Christians uh, prepare our hearts for the Christmas celebration that comes on December 25th every year. Uh, Advent comes from the Latin word that means coming, and it refers to the coming of Jesus as a man born into our world as a baby 2,000 years ago. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a break from the Life of David series called After God's Heart that we've been doing for a few months now. And we're going to spend some time looking at this Christmas message. And the title for this Advent series is, as you can see up there, it's called The Greatest Gift. And so as you might have guessed, this greatest gift title refers to God giving us his son, Jesus, who um, became a man and entered into our world to become one of us. And so each one of these messages in the Advent series will look at a different aspect of why we're calling it the greatest gift that we could receive. Um, and so I will preach the first two in this series, and then Pastor Peter will preach the third one. And then on the 23rd of December, for our Christmas service, I'll preach the last message in our Advent series for our Christmas service itself. Okay? And so my real hope is that through this Advent series that um, God is going to awaken something in all of us to renew that sense of wonder and joy in this Christmas message. I think, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church, it can become kind of a stale message, right? It can become sort of like a slogan that becomes like a cliche. And we're so used to thinking about, oh, yeah, Jesus, God's greatest gift. But my hope is that through these sermons that something would be stirred in you to recognize what an actually awesome and amazing message the message of Christmas is for all of us. And so why don't we just bow in a word of prayer as we uh, turn uh, to God's word and think about the Christmas message. Lord, uh, as the weeks approach for the celebration of Christmas, stir within our hearts uh, a sense of the imagination of being able to understand your heart for us 2,000 years ago when you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to become one of us and to walk this earth as we do and to take on flesh and blood and help us to have that rekindled sense of genuine wonder and mystery and joy and celebration at the marvel of that message, that we could glory in it and celebrate it and worship you in light of that message throughout this Advent season. For we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you've been at ICC for a number of years, you probably heard me refer to my struggle with the Christmas season uh, because of sort of the um, romanticized way that we often deal with it. You know, the, the starry night and the shepherds with their sheep and the wise men and uh, a little baby sleeping peacefully in a manger, 
You know, it's uh, so often very easy to get drawn into this sort of sanitized Hallmark Christmas version of the holiday, isn't it? But when we actually look at the gospel message of the Christmas story, it's actually a much rawer story than that. It's one with very rough edges. And as heartwarming as it is to picture God in the form of a cuddly newborn baby lying on a bed of straw in an animal pen, um, it's so important not to lose sight of the fact that this baby that was born 2,000 years ago was born so that years later, as an adult, that same child would die on a cross, fulfilling his mission for which God had sent him into our world to fulfill. Um, This is the darker side of the Christmas message that I think, truthfully, many of us find harder to accept. And it's the focus of my message today, the title of which is The Needed Gift. In other words, what I want to ask today is this. Why did God have to send his son to die on our behalf? Why was this gift needed in the first place? And one of the core assertions of the gospel message is that Jesus became a man and died on our behalf to atone for our sins and to give us his righteousness. Now, I want to say this. Again, for many of us who grew up in the church, we barely bat an eye when we hear this message. We're so familiar with it. And I think for most of us, it stirs a sense of heartwarming comfort that this is what God did. But I I, want to offer to you that there's actually a side to this gospel message that is actually rather offensive to a lot of people. For many, the message of the cross feels like a message of a religion that is barbaric, primitive. It stirs back another era when the gods demanded sacrifices with blood. Angry gods who needed to be appeased by men. And the only way to appease those gods was to offer sacrifice. And in a way, it can draw us into that sense of, man, Christianity is just like all those other religions. And what's interesting is that in recent years, there have been some voices that have risen in the church itself, people who call themselves pastors and Christians, who have actually echoed that same sentiment, that have actually argued and said, maybe we've gotten the message of the gospel all wrong. Maybe we haven't really understood what the Bible is saying when it talked about Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross. And in our enlightened modern times, in our modern sensibilities, maybe we need to rethink the gospel message as it's been traditionally handed down to us. As an angry God punishing his son for our sins so that his anger could be appeased and we could be forgiven. 
In his book, The Story We Find Ourselves In, Brian McLaren, it's a fictional novel, but in that fictional novel, he basically tries to disseminate a lot of his tenets of what he believes to be the Bible's message. It tells the story of these two people that are having a dialogue with each other, which is what McLaren does in a lot of his books. And so there's this main character named Carrie, who is a seeker, trying to grapple with Christianity. And Uh, encounters a friend who's a Christian named Carol. And they're wrestling together, trying to figure out, and and Carrie, the seeker, goes to uh, Carol, the Christian, and says, how does Jesus fit into this whole God story that you've been telling me about? And Carol basically responds with the classic Christian answer that has been held throughout the ages. And Carol says to, to, to Carrie, Well, I believe that God sent Jesus into the world to absorb all the punishment for our sins. That's what the cross was all about. It was Jesus absorbing the punishment that all of us deserve. He became the substitute for all of us. As he suffered and died, all our wrongs were paid for so that all of us can be forgiven. That's what Carol says to her. And Carrie responds like this, which is representing McLaren's viewpoint. If God wants to forgive us, why doesn't he just do it? How does punishing an innocent person make things better? That just sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse. (laughs) They're pretty strong words there. McLaren basically equates the traditional Christian understanding of the cross with God committing child abuse on his own son, Jesus. And McLaren is basically trying to stir the pot here and says, what good does that do to kill his innocent son because of what somebody else did wrong? What kind of a God is that? Would you want to worship a God like that? Steve Chalk is a pastor in the United Kingdom, UK, and he echoes McLaren's viewpoint on this matter as he says this. Why can't God do what he asks us to be able to do? In other words, to freely forgive without demanding retribution first. If God demanded a blood sacrifice because he was unable to extend forgiveness without it, then God himself is unwilling to follow the teachings of Jesus. Although Jesus tells us to walk the extra mile and to turn the other cheek and to freely give without expecting in return, God just can't do the same. And it gets even darker than this. If God needs someone to pay the price for our sin, the question is, does he ever really forgive anyone at all? If you owed someone 100 pounds, he's British, okay? If you, if you owed someone 100 pounds and they refused to release you from your debt until someone else paid the bill for you, in what sense did they really forgive the debt at all? If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God toward humankind but born by his son, then it makes a mockery 
of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to pay evil with evil. These are some pretty strong charges against God in the traditional view of how we understand the cross and atonement. In other words, by punishing Jesus, his only son, on the cross for our sins, Chalk is basically arguing that God is unable to do what he commands us to do, which is to forgive without demanding penalty from the people who have hurt us. Furthermore, Chalk argues that if Jesus had to pay the penalty for our sin, then is it even really accurate to describe God as a forgiving, merciful God at all? Where is the mercy in that? And I would ask you, if an atheist approached you at work or on the metro and said these very things to you, how would you reply? How would you defend your faith? and make a case for God. I think the place to begin is with the Bible. Do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Um, and to discover in the pages of the Bible that it is filled with an undeniable support for this traditional understanding of the atonement, that Jesus became our substitute on the cross. He took our guilt on himself, and let's be honest, he took the wrath of God on himself and died for it. And in exchange, gave us his righteousness imputed to us. And it's not a doctrine held up by a few obscure verses that you have to scratch for in the Bible, but it's infused everywhere in the Old and New Testaments. In fact, I could spend hours unpacking all of the passages that talk about this idea of Jesus being our substitute and bearing the wrath of God. But for the sake of time, let's just look at a few. One way we see this idea of atonement is the Passover, the Passover. When God was about to set the Israelites free from their slavery in Egypt, Right before that final plague where the firstborn of every household was going to die, God commanded the Israelites to find a perfect spotless lamb for every household and to put that lamb to death as nightfall approached. And then what they were to do is they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to paint their doorposts with that blood. And then they were at that evening to eat the meat of that lamb as a Passover meal, along with some unleavened bread, some bitter herbs, and some other things. And if they obeyed that command on that Passover night, then when God came to exact his judgment over all of Egypt, what God said is, I will pass over that house of the Israelite who obeyed my command and who has the blood on their doorposts and they will be spared. And so it's interesting that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, 
He enters it during the Passover season when all the Jews have gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. And he happens to come on the very day when all of the Jews are picking the spotless lamb, when they are all purchasing their Passover lamb. Jesus enters Jerusalem. And his final meal with the disciples will be a Passover meal. But he transforms the meaning of that meal, teaching his disciples that the bread that they now eat represents the broken body that he is going to offer as a sacrifice. And that the wine that they drink in that meal represents his own blood that would be shed for their sins. And so not surprisingly, the New Testament is filled with these references of Jesus being the Passover lamb. Let me just give you a couple by way of example. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 to 7 says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul is making a metaphor of the Passover meal, talking about the unleavened bread, and now Jesus as being the lamb that is served at that meal, the sacrificial one. Another way that the atonement is affirmed in Scripture is the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, which was centered around the concept of atonement. The sacrificial animal, again, was to be a spotless animal, symbolizing an innocent party that would be substituting itself for a guilty party. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3 to 4 says this, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. In other words, this animal, as you lay your hand on the head of that beast, And that perfect beast without spot, without blemish, your sins will be transferred on it. And it will be put to death on your behalf. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says, For the life of a creature is in its blood, is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. In other words, blood was essential to the Old Testament system. Without blood, there is no sacrifice. There is no atonement. That's why the writer in Hebrews in the New Testament, in chapter 9, verse 18 to 22, would say this. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is 
no forgiveness. And then the last thing that I want to point out here from the Old Testament is this. It's what is called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Or Yom Kippur in Hebrew. It's the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And on that day, only the high priest was allowed to enter into the the tabernacle and later the temple. And he would basically offer the sacrifice of a bull that he would kill for his own sins before he enters the most holy place. And then he would take the blood from that sacrifice bull. And remember last week we looked at uh, Uzzah? And the Ark of God in that story of David? Well, that Ark was in the most holy place. And remember, the, seat, the, the covering of that Ark was called the mercy seat or the atonement lid. And on that were two angels that were facing each other with their wings touching. And in the center of that was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God's presence. And the high priest was commanded to take the blood of that bull and sprinkle it on that mercy seat. Symbolic of God forgiving his sins. And then the command went on that he was to take two goats. One goat would be offered as a sacrifice for a sin offering for the entire nation of Israel. And again, the high priest was commanded to take that blood from that goat and sprinkle it on the ark of God. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15 to 16 says this, He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover, which is the mercy seat, the lid of the ark, And in front of it, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. But the second goat was not killed. Leviticus 16 verse 21 to 22 tells us the instructions for that second goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sin, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." This was known as the scapegoat, which was left to wander alone in the wilderness and to die alone without a shepherd because it symbolically carried the guilt of the entire nation on itself. And the writer points out that even this day of atonement was pointing ahead to Jesus and what he would do for us. And in talking about that, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 to 27, it says this, Such a high, speaking of Jesus, it says, Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins, once for all, when he offered himself. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that unlike these human high priests who first had to atone for their own sins before they could atone for the sins of the people, said that this high priest in Jesus was the perfect high priest. So he didn't need to make an atonement for himself. He only had to do it once for all for everyone. 
And so the New Testament then is filled with these references to Jesus of how he fulfills all that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament about this concept of atonement. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 25, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus himself would affirm the nature of his atoning death when he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That ransom terminology is atonement language. I give myself up to set you free. Revelation chapter 1 Verse 5 to 6. And says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, these are only a few of the many other verses that exist in the Bible to basically say that Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross. And by the shedding of his blood, we are declared innocent because he became our substitute. So I think this is when Brian McLaren and Steve Chalk and others of their ilk basically try to argue that we have gotten this all totally wrong, that this traditional view of the atonement is basically the equation of child abuse because of our misguided interpretation of the Bible, I just see no merit to their argument. I don't see how they could possibly argue this point. But, but, but what about the argument that even if this is what the Bible affirms, man, it really seems barbaric. And, if you're cynical enough, even hypocritical, of God. To demand a punishment for our sins when we're expected to forgive others freely without penalty. See, everything that I covered right now doesn't really address that part of the argument, does it? All I've affirmed is that's what the Bible teaches. Well, To respond to that more difficult argument, I want to offer to you the way that uh, Miroslav Volv, this uh, really uh, amazing theologian, uh, helps us to grapple with this atonement doctrine. 
And, and what Volv would argue is this, is before forgiveness can even be given to somebody, there must be the understanding that a wrongdoing has taken place. And really, you could even argue, is condemned. Okay? If there isn't common agreement that a wrongdoing has taken place, then there's not even the first steps toward forgiveness, is there? And so the first place to begin is to say, yes, a wrongdoing has taken place. And it deserves to be condemned. So then what is forgiveness? Well, to forgive someone is to withhold condemnation. Releasing the offender of the guilt of that wrongdoing. That, in the essence, is what forgiveness is. And in that sense, forgiveness is one of the most selfless and giving things that you can do. Because when you forgive someone, you are taking the benefit of the offender into greater consideration than even your own care, right, as the victim. And what has happened? You are, when you forgive somebody, you're saying, I am looking after your welfare as the one who hurt me, even more so than my own welfare. And as as beautiful as that picture is of forgiveness, I think there is an uneasiness that all of us feel when forgiveness is defined in this way, isn't there? There's even not just an uneasiness, but an offense to forgiveness. In other words, there is a sense of injustice inherent in forgiveness. Because when somebody is forgiven and is not required to pay the penalty of their crime, there is a genuine sense in all of us that somehow justice has been thwarted. And so I think there is a valid place to ask the question, is it actually a good thing when somebody does something wrong and just gets off the hook for free? Is that a good thing? When we forgive so easily and generously like that, aren't we just becoming enablers? Inviting that person to keep hurting you as well as others? over and over again, as long as that forgiveness is there for the taking? There's so many questions that are raised by forgiveness, isn't there? Does the victim even hold all the rights to that forgiveness? Do you really have the power to forgive alone? I mean, if somebody kills your family member, and you decide to forgive that person, that person is still a murderer, and you don't have the authority just to let that person free because that's an issue that society has to deal with, right? And justice must be paid. And then you bring a holy God into the picture, a righteous judge, and it becomes exponentially more complicated what forgiveness looks like. Um, In William Young's novel, The Shack, um, now, I don't know, has anyone read The Shack? A couple of you have. I I saw the movie and it 
stirred my interest enough that I, I got the book and read it. And I, 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 so I'm going to use it as an illustration, but I'm going to say there's a lot that I struggle with about the shack, okay? So it's not that I'm giving you a ringing endorsement of this book, okay? There, there's actually a lot of bad theology in there that I, I don't think is right. But there was a particular scene in this book that really captivated me. In Young's novel, The Shack, it tells the story of this guy, uh, Mackenzie, the main character. And he grew up the son of an alcoholic father who just beat him daily, verbally, physically, emotionally abused him throughout his entire childhood. And somehow he managed to overcome that brokenness of his childhood and actually have a healthy family of his own with a wife and three children. And then one day, they went on a camping trip. And his two older kids were out on a canoe in the lake. They tipped over. They were about to drown. And so Mackenzie went out to the lake, and he rescued them, saved them. But in the commotion and the chaos of that rescue attempt, uh, no one was watching the youngest daughter, Missy. And so when they finally got back to shore, they didn't know where Missy was. She had disappeared. So they called law enforcement, began to panic. And a search was done throughout the entire woods. And finally, their worst fears were realized when the police told them that she was abducted by a pedophile serial killer and that she was killed. And the death of his daughter shattered his life and sent him on a tailspin, ultimately abandoning his faith in God. And he is, he's living in the carnage of this life that just seems cursed. He receives this letter in his mailbox in the winter, and there's no footsteps on the fallen snow, freshly fallen snow. But there's this cryptic letter that's addressed from Papa, which is what Mackenzie called God when he was a kid, how he used to pray to God when his dad was beating him. And the letter from Papa simply says, meet me at the cabin. Meet me at the cabin. So Mackenzie doesn't really know what's going on. He thinks it might be somebody who has a clue to the whereabouts of the person that killed his daughter. He doesn't know. So he goes to the cabin. And there he meets God, who begins to take Mackenzie on a journey to try to come to a place of understanding about all of the brokenness that has happened in his life. And then one day, after some time in this cabin, God sends him to this cave that's across the lake. He says, you're finally ready to go to this place. It's a really important place where something has to happen in your life. And he's very nervous. He doesn't know what this cave is all about. But he gets on a boat and he goes to the cave. And inside the cave, he encounters this stunningly beautiful woman in these dark robes named Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. It's lady wisdom that he's come to see. And he doesn't know why he's there in the cave meeting this woman. And they're talking for a while. They're bantering and finally... Sophia says to him, uh, you know, 
you are here for judgment. You are here for judgment. And suddenly Mackenzie comes very nervous and he starts thinking about all the past sins that he's done and all of the wrongs that he's committed and he's terrified now because he's about to face judgment. And they keep talking and eventually he's getting confused and he doesn't know what's going on here. And Sophia, and so finally uh, uh, Sophia says to him, uh, no, no, Mackenzie, you're not going to face judgment. You are the judge. <laughs> you are the judge. And Mackenzie's confused and so he says, so what am I supposed to judge? <laughs> what am I here to judge? And then Sophia says to him, oh, you're here to judge God <laughs> and the human race. <laughs> and Mackenzie wants no part of this. He says, I don't want to do that. And Sophia kind of laughs at him and says, why don't you want to do this? Because you've been doing this all your life, <laughs> judging God and judging others. Why are you having such a hard time with it now? And so she tries to get the ball rolling and throws Mackenzie a softball. And she says, well, let's just start here. What about the greedy who feed off the poor of the world? What about the ones who sacrifice their young children to war? What about the men who beat their wives, Mackenzie? How about that one, huh? What about the fathers who beat their sons for no reason but to assuage their own suffering, referring to Mackenzie's own father? Don't they deserve judgment, Mackenzie? And what about the man who preys on innocent little girls? What about him, Mackenzie? Is that man guilty? Should he be judged? And finally, Mackenzie has had enough. And he screams back at her, yes, damn him to hell. And then Sophia says to him, and what about his father, the man who twisted his son into a terror? What about him? Implying that that pedophile had been abused himself and twisted into a monster by his father. And so Mackenzie says, yeah, him too, because he created the monster. And then Sophia goes on and on and says, how about you, Mackenzie? Do you deserve judgment? And what about your children? Which one of them deserves judgment? And then finally, Sophia says, how far back, how far do we go back, Mackenzie? This legacy of brokenness goes all the way back to Adam. What about him? But why stop there? What about God? God started the whole thing. Is God to blame? I think what not only the shack teaches us, but what the Bible itself teaches us is that there is a stain over the entire world because of sin. And not one of us is spared of that stain. All of us are dirty with the guilt of sin. And as we look at the world that is filled with so many injustices and abuse and brokenness and hurt, I think it is only when you begin to see it that way that you begin to grasp the need for the wrath of God in his creation. Miroslav Volv says this. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. 
Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. In other words, just the experience of life on this earth, there is something within every one of us who are made in the image of God that says there has to be some reckoning for all the evil that is done, for all of the abuse that is perpetrated on victims, and all of the hurt and all of the pain. And there's something that's within every one of us that cries out for justice, isn't there? But even as you hear what Volv is saying, I think there's a way that we can sort of parse things a little bit. And we can say, yeah, all right. For those heinous crimes like pedophile serial killers, mass murderers and dictators like Hitler, kill them all, send them to hell. But I'm no Hitler. (laughs) I'm no Pol Pot. I never committed mass murder. I never killed anyone in my life. I never even thought about killing anyone. But you run into a dilemma, don't you? If there is going to be such a thing as justice in our world, where do you draw the line? That line becomes arbitrary, isn't it? What is a punishable offense? And what do you get to go scot-free? If all wrongdoing and evil in our world must be punished, then none of us would survive that judgment. All of us are guilty. Now, I think it's at this point in the argument that some of you just are kind of sitting there uncomfortable in your seats because this is precisely the crux of the argument where most of us kind of start to veer away from God. And you think, yeah, but... Why can't God just overlook all of our wrongs? Yes, acknowledge the great injustice and grieve it, mourn all the evil that is perpetrated in our world, but at the end of the day, if he is a merciful God, why can't he just look the other way? 
After all, it's his law, isn't it? He's the one that wrote the book. (laughs) He can change the terms. It's his world. But the next part of the argument is something that you just have to accept. And it is this. God will not violate his own law, his own moral code. And that does not, you can say like, well, isn't, isn't God by definition all, the all-powerful being? If he's all-powerful, why can't he just undo his own law? And I'm arguing that this does not mean that somehow God is subject to his own law as if he is under the authority of that law. Because God is all-powerful and has all authority. A better way to understand why God does not violate that command that he gives of sense of justice is that the very moral code that he will not violate is that way because of his own essence. Do you understand that? It is out of God being a God who is holy and just that the moral laws that we violate all the time are even in place. And I don't have a full explanation for why that is the way it is. I said that last week when we looked at Uzzah, and when he touched the ark and he died, and I said, there's something mysterious about this holy God that we cannot fully understand. But what we do know is that God is holy and he is just. And he always acts out of that holiness and justice. He never, ever violates that holiness and justice. That is the very essence of who he is. And so we're stuck. We're almost like right back where we started and I just wasted 40 minutes, right? So much garbage and sin and evil and brokenness in our world and God will not bend. God is not going to be your doting grandfather who's senile and says, it's all right, kids, you just go play and try not to hurt each other. God will not do that because he is just and he is holy. And so all that is left is judgment. All that is left is condemnation. And that's why I will make this final point, and it is this. God saw that the only solution to this problem is that he himself must pay the price of our guilt and our sin. That is the only way to satisfy his justice and yet demonstrate his mercy toward us, is that he himself will pay the penalty for our crime. Isaiah 43, verse 25 says this, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. In other words, God says, I will pay the penalty. I will suffer the consequences of your choices and your sin. And the way I will do it, though, is I will send my son to the earth to die on your behalf. And that, that, that is the part that still is that clause that McLaren and Chalk says is the uneasy part. It's the divine child abuse part. Because that does not sound like a loving father. 
to send his son to die who is innocent for somebody else's sin. Because is that really justice? To punish an innocent victim for somebody else's crime. That sounds like more like injustice than justice. That is true and that is a valid argument until you realize one final key element in the whole argument of the gospel and it is this, that the father and the son are one. So that when Jesus was on the cross, it was nothing less than God on the cross himself. That is why the divine child abuse argument doesn't hold water. John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18 dispels any argument for divine child abuse. When Jesus himself says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I lay it down. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's what Jesus says. I wasn't victimized into this. I didn't have to go to the cross. I willfully went to the cross on my own volition because of the love that I have for you and for my Father. I lay down my own life. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Do you hear what Paul is saying? In Christ, God was the one reconciling. The Father and the Son together there in that picture of atonement, of redeeming us because of our sin. That's why in Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 5, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. It's the divine child abuse argument. Stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 to 28 says this, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen? This is the Christmas message. That's the heart of the Christmas message. The great prophet Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty 
will accomplish this. Let's pray. This is what we celebrate during this Christmas season. Is we celebrate this mysterious and amazing message that in a world filled with brokenness and pain and sin and in the midst of that pain and sin and we feel that sense of injustice being violated all the time and just sense that there is so much wrong in this world and as Miroslav Vol says there is some human cry that comes out that says surely there's got to be a day of reckoning Surely someone must pay for these crimes and yet as soon as those words come from our lips they get reflected right back on us and say yeah but what about you are you free of the stain that stains this whole world and so we find ourselves in this dilemma that there is something within us that longs for God's justice and yet we recognize that if that justice were to visit this world we ourselves could not stand under it And this holy and this just God is also a loving and merciful God. And he says the only way to solve this dilemma is if I come down there myself and lay down my life and pay the penalty for my people. And so this is not divine child abuse. This is the most glorious and beautiful message of a God who so loved us that he would give us his only son and his son would say i do this willingly for the love of these people and for the love of my father no one takes my life from me i lay it down willingly for the people i love this is what is so glorious about this christmas holiday that this little beautiful child born in a manger was brought into this earth to become flesh and blood so that that flesh could be torn for your sins and mine. And as horrid as that sounds, there's something so desperately glorious that we need in that message because that is the message of our own salvation that t- helps us to find peace with God. Would you just pray that for a couple minutes as you sit there in your seats and meditate on the truth of this message? And our worship team will lead us in a time of response in just a little bit.